Welcome everybody to the Scottish <clears throat> Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is Saturday the 18th of June 2022. My name is Audrey Ann and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland. I will be your host for today's study and our co-hosts are Tammy M, Johan N, Veronica C and Sue L. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either the hosts or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions will, which follows will not be recorded. We will post the link to previous week's recording in the chat function. We ask if you can please make sure your microphone is on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off the video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. And I will now turn you over now to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. It's June 18th, 2022. And I know I say this a lot, but I hope it's just as stunning a day where you are as it is here in uh, Arizona in the Sonoran Desert. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, we have been studying chapter three in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're going to talk for a minute here, but just to let you know, we're going to be starting on page 34 at the bottom of the page when it's where it says, how then shall we help? That paragraph is where we're going to start. But let's take a look at what some of the things that jump out at us in the previous readings are. We started out this chapter with a wonderful definition of step one. And remember, this is the chapter, the last chapter, that is going to deal with step number one. We're not going to talk about step number one anymore after this chapter. We're going to go into chapter institute. Uh, into steps two through 12 in the ensuing part of the book. So it's very important that the book leaves us with wonderful information on step one. And I believe it does that. And it says at the very beginning of this chapter, it says very simply, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. What is an alcoholic? An alcoholic is someone who possesses a physical allergy to alcohol, or in our case, certain foods, certain ingredients, and a person who has a mind that locks in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. And we will call that the mental twist. And we're also going to be looking at the mental blank spot. The mental blank spot is the built-in forgetter. And we find that the two characteristics of the disease, the mental twist and the physical allergy, are accompanied by three properties. The three properties of this disease are that the disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. The disease, if left unchecked by a spiritual awakening, is indeed fatal. Now, this information, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, comes from a book called The Common Sense of Drinking. And The Common Sense of Drinking was written in 1930. And it was written by a man named Richard Peabody. 
And Richard Peabody wrote this book. And in the book, he comes short of discovering or enumerating a spiritual solution, a spiritual remedy to his alcoholism. He doesn't quite get there. But some of the things that he wrote are so key, so vital that Bill Wilson's copy of The Common Sense of Drinking is in the AA archives as we do this big book study this morning. Very, very key. Remember that there were four books that heavily influenced the writing of the big book. They are as follows. The Book of James, New Testament. The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. That's why you have the stories in the back of the big book. You have the um, Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. And the fourth of those books is The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. Sad little footnote to Richard Peabody. He was an alcoholic. He wrote the book. It was published in 1930. He died of his own alcoholism six years later in 1936, one year after Bill and Bob began their journey of Alcoholics Anonymous. Very, very sad footnote that he died of his own alcoholism. Very, very sad. But he leaves us with an inheritance of a wealth of information. And one of the things that we studied when we studied A Man of 30, which was the first of the stories that we looked at, Today, we're going to look at someone else named Jim, but in the story, a man named 30, uh, 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 a man named 30, a man of 30, a man named 30. Could you imagine if that was your name? But anyway, uh, I digress. But the bottom line is, is that let's take a look at some of the things quickly that we learn from that story. The first thing is that that is that the disease is progressive because even though he didn't drink for 25 years, he not only picked up where he left off, he picked up worse than he left off. Again, the three properties of the disease, permanent, progressive, fatal. What else do we learn from the story that we read last week of a man of 30? We learn very graphically that abstinence or sobriety does not treat this disease. I'm going to talk about that for just a minute because a lot of times people will go to a meeting or they'll be on the phone or whatever they are and they'll say something that they don't have they don't mean to be misleading, but it can be. Let me just examine it for a minute. And I'm not here to cause controversy, but what we learned from this story that we read last week is that abstinence does not treat the disease. So if I say abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception, I get the meaning of it, but honestly, the most important thing in my life without exception is different. On page 45, which we have not gotten to yet, we are going to read together, not today, but we're going to read it on page 45. It is the thesis line of the big book in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the thesis line of the big book says, the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And here is what I learned, and I learned it the hard way. Oh, did I learn this the hard way? I must be abstinent, but I must constantly seek a greater 
spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. So if the main object of this book is to help me find a power greater than myself, then by definition for a person like me, it must become the main object of my life. And what do I do to seek this higher power? I go through service and self-sacrifice for others. In other words, sponsorship. Now, there are many, many forms of service. And some of the things that we see every day, I was taking a look at something I haven't looked at in a long time, the website of scottsdalebigbook.com. And I was marveling at the work that the people do, Sue and, and Lauren and some of the people that, and Maria and all the various people that are integral in doing the service and Audrey and all the rest of the people that are hosting this and co-hosting this, people that did things I don't have any expertise to do. They got that website up and running and they got those podcasts up and running. And I'm very, very flattered to find that 4,000 people listened to those podcasts last year. Wow, that blows my mind. It just blows my mind. And I hope that when you are in that website, you'll take a minute to thank God that these people do that kind of work so we can present this to other people and maybe leave a few shekels for seventh tradition while you're there. That would be good too. But what do we learn from the man of 30? He didn't drink for 25 years and he was dead within four years. Isn't that sad? He was dead within four years. Do I believe that I have another recovery left in me? I don't know. But here's what I'm certain of. Because of my age and because of my medical situation with chronic AFib and because of my mind. And my mind is just as integral here as the body, because if I lose the will to live again, I believe that I will die. Not that I'll jump out the window, not that I'll take something and, and make it happen. I, I'm not a suicidal person. If I was, I wouldn't be here. But I don't believe that my mind will take another relapse. I don't believe my body can survive another relapse. So I better hang on to what I have because it certainly is better than any alternative that I can think of. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story, a man of 30, that it absolutely uh, demonstrates in the most graphic way, permanent, progressive, and unfortunately, fatal. Let's go to page 34, the bottom of the page. It says, how then shall we help our readers determine? And I'll give you a second to get there because I want you to follow along with me. If you can, if you just want to listen, that's perfectly fine too. But I just wanted to give you a second to get there. How then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction, whether they are one of us? And this happens once in a while. It doesn't happen all that often, but every once in a while, someone will call me, usually someone who is in doubt, obviously someone who's in doubt always, and they'll say, I don't know that I'm one of you or not. I don't, I can't really make that determination if I'm a compulsive overeater or not. And I just ask them some various questions. And the questions that I ask them are these, when you eat certain foods, can you control the amount you eat? 
or do you want more and more and more and more? And I say to them, when you're not eating that food, are you obsessing mentally about that food? In other words, I'm not eating Doritos today, or I'm not eating, you know, chocolate covered cherries, whatever that may be. And I'm not obsessing about them either because I'm in recovery. I don't really want these commodities. But when I'm left unchecked and I'm in my disease, every single time my mouth grabs a chocolate covered cherry, I am not just chewing that chocolate covered cherry. I'm obsessing about how am I going to get more of them? How am I going to get them in the future? When am I going to be doing this again? That's the kind of thing that enters my mind when I'm eating certain foods or that I do not want to let go of or and and or when I'm eating a certain food, let's call it pizza. Do I obsess about how much I'm eating of it? In other words, are you going to eat that piece? Are you going to eat that piece? Because I want to make sure I get all the pizza in my mouth that I can get. And in my mind, I'm already plotting out how am I going to get more pizza in the future? How am I going to score more pizza? Not get more. I like to say score more. And I got that from a friend of mine named Ira. He used to say, I need to score more of this pizza. I need to score more of these muffins. I need, and he used to talk like that all the time. Unfortunately, he's gone now, but he used to say that all the time. And I thought it was so funny because it makes it seem like it's a drug deal. And you know what, for us, it sure is. It absolutely is a drug deal. When I would sit down on Sheridan Road in Chicago at My Pie Pizza on Sheridan Road near Loyola University, I used to, when we, a pizza there takes a long time. It takes like 45 minutes for them to bring it to the table. Oh, I would order antipasta and I would order soup and I would order all kinds. Every appetizer that wasn't nailed down, I would order it because I was jonesing in my my mind, I could smell the pizza around me and I was going crazy. And my friends, they were sitting there, were telling stories and they're talking and they're laughing and they're talking about all kinds of sports and girls and this and that. I'm sitting there counting the seconds. I'm sitting there, you know, with my watch and I'm going, where's the pizza? Where's the pizza? And, you know, we just, we just ordered it one second ago for the love of God, give them a chance. So those are the kind of things that let me know that when it comes to certain foods, I am not a normal eater. And these are the kinds of things that we look for. Let's continue with the paragraph and I'll have a little more to say about how to determine if somebody is one of us or not. <clears throat> how then shall we determine, how then shall they help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states which precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. But before I leave this paragraph to go to the next one, this is what I say to some people. 
people that call or all people that call me, am I one of you or not? Because I sure don't know. I will ask them very simply, what is your absolute favorite binge food? What is your absolute favorite thing to quote unquote party on? in your mind. And they'll usually say ice cream. Ice cream is the most, if I was doing uh, the match game with Richard Dawson from the sixties or seventies, and they said, okay, your favorite binge food, I would use, say that the number one uh, response is ice cream. All right, show me ice cream. And they would say ice cream and everybody be clapping. Okay. I say, do this, get your favorite flavor of ice cream let's say today's Saturday, which it is. Get your favorite flavor of ice cream at the store today. Get a container of it that's at least a half a gallon, least a half a gallon of ice cream and take some, have some ice cream. If that container is still there on Monday, you are probably not one of us. If that container is not there on Monday, welcome home. Welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome home. Join the club and let's trudge the road of happy destiny together. You are probably one of us. But again, it's a self-diagnosing disease. But that's my input when I get these calls. Okay, so we're going to look now at the sort of thinking that precede, that dominates an alcoholic. I'm at the top of 35. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Now, let's take a look at something that I talked about at length when we were studying the doctor's opinion. And I talked about this when we were studying Bill's story. And again, I always want to let you know what my opinion is here. Not that my opinion is so important, but maybe it's, it's, it's good to think about. Sometimes we think that Bill met Bob and AA sprung out of their ear. It did not. And were it not for Dr. Silkworth, Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, there would not be an AA. There would not be a book. There would not be a program. There would not be recovery because Dr. William Duncan Silkworth wrote the doctor's opinion. And in writing the doctor's opinion, he leaves us as an inheritance to future generations, the most comprehensive, the most concise, the most fantastic definition of what this disease is. And without that cornerstone from William Duncan Silkworth, there is nothing to talk about because you can't talk about relief therefrom if you don't know what the situation is. So every time I think about Dr. Silkworth, the little doctor who loved drunks, I say a prayer that goes something like this. Thank you, Dr. Silkworth. And thank you, God, for bringing this magnificent man into the life of Bill Wilson so that we could have the program we have. Okay, well, we've been asking ourselves the question, why would someone pick up food? Why would someone do the things that they did? When I went to my high school graduation, 
when I was a senior at Mather High School, I had been on a diet and I had lost some weight, but earlier that year, I weighed in at 335 pounds as a senior in high school. And this disease did a lot more than, than make me fat. It killed my dreams and it physically emasculated me. And it made me live in guilt and shame. And it made me think of myself as less than human. It, it destroyed every shred of decency, of dignity, and it did not allow, allow my mind and my heart to soar and dream and to love and to be loved. This disease came into my life like a plague, and it destroyed me from the inside out, and it eroded to the point of death my will to live. And then God came in and whispered, I'm the one ember of my heart that remained unburned by my desire to die. And I, it burst into flames and I'm alive today. But the bottom line is this disease does more than make me fat. It does more than make me look horrible. It makes me hate myself. It is a disease of self-loathing. It is a disease of being apart from the world rather than a part of the world. It is a disease that destroys the sufferer in every area of their life. And I don't care how outwardly beautiful you may be. I don't care how outwardly brilliant you are. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care what your background is. I don't care whether you're from Yale or jail. I don't care whether you're black or white, green or yellow. I don't care whether you're gay or straight. I don't care whether you're trans. I don't care what you are or who you are because it makes no difference. The one thing that we all have in common and we're here today, it's 145 of us so far today. The one thing we have in common is that we have more than a desire to lose weight we, or, to get, or to not be anorexic and not restrict anymore. But we have a desire to be more comfortable in our insides than they have been. Because when we compare and despair and we don't have that will to live and we're ashamed of ourselves and we miss out on life and we do not include ourselves in the beautiful ritual that is living life, we are destroyed by this disease. And God comes into our life through this magnificent program. And, and, and he restores us in all these areas. I'll talk more about the restoration in these areas in a future podcast. But it is that destruction of our will to live. It is that destruction of our minds and our bodies. Why would we continue to eat? Because you see, food for people like me and, and you is not the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, then what is the problem? And the problem is the buildup of everyday normal human emotions. And the big book tells me over and over again, lack of power is my dilemma. Does that mean lack of power over food? Yes, it does. But it also means that lack of power over these emotions, because it is the discomfort that I feel. It is the toxicity of these 
emotions. It is the absolute discomfort that I feel when I'm angry, when I'm scared, when I'm happy. Happy. I've eaten railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies because things went well for me and I felt invulnerable. It is this disconnect in the way we relate to the outside world. And it is this desire to arrange everything in our life to our liking so that maybe if the outsides were calmer, maybe if the outsides were more according to our script, then the insides would feel better. And it never seems to catch up. No matter how many people stick to my script, there's always someone in outer Mongolia. There's always someone out there, God knows where, Baylor University or God knows where, that's not sticking to my script. And as such, I get frustrated, I get angry. And the next thing you know, I'm eating food that makes no sense that I'm eating. I'm destroying myself. And this self-destruction comes from the discomfort that we feel when we have these guilts, shame, remorse, fear, anger, happiness, jealousy, compare and despair. And the next thing you know, you'll be eating because eating will be a step up from where you currently are. Now, what is that solution? The solution is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Without that spiritual awakening- I will never, somebody's unmuted guys. I will never ever be able to successfully stay out of the food because I will be hunkered down on unaided willpower, or I will be dieting with group support. And what do I know about diets? They don't work for people like me. If they did, I wouldn't be here. I went on my first diet at age five, six, seven. By the time I was nine, I was on amphetamines to control the desire to eat. Let's continue with the book. I hope what I'm saying makes sense to you. I hope what I'm saying, you can relate to what I'm saying. Okay, we're on page 35. And our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. And in Jim, common AA legacy says that we're talking about Ralph Furlong, Ralph F. Some recent information disputes that it was Ralph Furlong, but we don't know for sure. But in William Sheberg's The Writing of the Big Book, he disputes this, but common knowledge or common history for a long time was that this is the story of Ralph Furlong. (sighs) Okay, let's continue. Doesn't matter who it is. Let's just either relate to it or not. But I just like to throw in a little history. But Ralph Furlong was the guy who wrote, it appeared in the first edition only, Another Prodigal Son. And Another Prodigal Son was one of those stories that does appear in a book called Experience, Strength, and Hope. It is AA-approved literature. It's called Experience, Strength, and Hope. And what that simply is, it's a collection of the stories from the first, second, and third edition of the big book that have been excluded. They have been taken out, mostly because these guys went back to drinking or something, whatever that may be, but mostly it's because they went back into the booze. 
but it is this book, Experience, Strength, and Hope, is conference approved. It's okay to talk about it here because it's just simply a collection of stories from the first three editions that have been excluded. Okay, let's continue. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. Pretty good so far. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. Sounds like any of us so far, right? Sounds like it could be just any of us. <clears throat> He did no drinking till he was 35. In other words, he was an adult onset. He didn't you know, get drunk at an early age like some people do. Now, because food is a different commodity and I have a different story and many of you do too, food is more readily accessible to people. We all eat food, whether you were compulsive overeaters or not. So usually you will find that people start off on a bad path before the age of 35. But I know at least one of my very dear friends, he was the best man at my wedding and I was the best man at his wedding. He's a dear, dear soul. But he, all of a sudden, when we got into our 30s, he blew up like a balloon. He had never been significantly overweight in his life, never been significantly preoccupied with food. And then all of a sudden, and today, sadly, he's about 400 pounds. He's unable to walk very well, can barely get in and out of a car. His life is just ransacked and he just refuses to do anything about it. He just refuses. Very, very sad. And I don't want to lose him. I really, really don't want to lose him. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. Could somebody mute? On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. Now, asylums are not like what you may be thinking, an antiseptic hospital or something that's pleasant. Asylums in those days, particularly asylums for the alcoholic, the insane, were the same thing. They went in there with all the mentally ill people. They went in there with all the people that were not capable of functioning on their own in the world. And the men and women that were alcoholics would go in there for an undetermined period of time. And it was actually much more nightmarish for the women alcoholics than it was for the men. The women suffered much more than the men. The women were often taken advantage of and given lobotomies and, and all kinds of things, just all manner of insanity was heaped upon these alcoholics. They were not very pleasant places. If you had a family and the family would look out after you, you had it a little easier because they knew there was somebody looking over your shoulder. But if you didn't have a family and you didn't have anybody looking in on you, it was not a pretty picture. Now, I want you to really stay with me here. We told him what we knew of alcoholism. What did they know about alcoholism? That it's a physical allergy coupled with a mental twist. And the answer we had found, which was the spiritual awakening. So they've given him steps one and two. 
one and two. He made a beginning, step three. Step three is described as not only a beginning, but it is also described as a decision. So it's a decision and a beginning. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. Let's just stop right there. If I, I own my own business, I own my own company, and my company is a very small company. I, I make my bills. I don't owe anybody a nickel. I used to make a lot more money than I make now, but business has gone down because I sell on the phone and, and it's hard to get people to come to the phone, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not here to cry on your shoulder. I don't owe anybody a nickel, although I do probably have to go to the bank and get a loan on my house because I need a tank of gas. And I don't know if I'm gonna be able to afford a tank of gas with just the money I have in the bank. I may have to take out a loan on the freaking house over here. I don't know, I, I was in California a couple of weeks ago and they're paying $7 a gallon for gasoline out there. And I says, holy moly, we're paying about $6 a gallon here in Arizona. So I may have to stop off at the bank and see if they'll give me a home loan, uh, a loan on my house so I can go get a tank of gas. But anyway, that aside, that aside, I wouldn't want to work as a salesman for the company that I own. That would be pretty ego deflating if I had to be in that situation. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And if you've done steps one, two, and three, and you want to expand your spiritual life, enlarge your spiritual life, what do you think you might have to do? Four through 12, and then get out there and sponsor. Because again, it says in, on page eight, 89, nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. Nothing. So we need to get you sponsoring. To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. So bang, 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 he's getting drunk. Now, on each of these occasions, we worked with him. So people will ask me from time to time, if someone slips, what should I do? And I will tell them, go to page 96 of the book. What does it say? And then they'll say, but... It says on page 35 that they hung in there with the guy. Yes, they hung in there with the guy. Notice it doesn't say on each of these occasions, I worked with him. It says on each of these occasions, we worked with him. They passed him around from person to person to try to find the voice that would get through to him. So it says we worked with him, not I worked with him. There's a vast difference between I worked with him and we worked with him. Make note of that. It is very important that you remember whether you are the sponsor or the sponsee, that when somebody is continuing to fail, you are actually hurting them more than you're helping them if you continue to just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. We worked with him rather than I worked with him. Let's continue reviewing carefully what had happened. So the first thing I do when someone slips is, hey, what the heck happened? What was going on over there? 
What do you think? What, what was the story over there? He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He finally got a picture through his failures of his real condition. Seldom will I get informed by pleasure. Seldom will I get informed because things went well for me. More often than that, the information that I'm going to glean out is going to come from extreme pain. It says in the big book of AA, it says alcohol was a great persuader. That may be, but the best persuader for me is extreme pain and humiliation. I wish it was different. And I know God does too, but God doesn't get my attention very well. When things go well for me, he more easily gets my attention when things are not going well for me. And that is when my brain and my soul are crying out for something different. Let's continue. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. And you know what? If you had been in one of those asylums in the 1920s, 1930s, gosh, you would not want to go back there. They were not the antiseptic places that you see today in your mind. The treatment center, the hospital, nothing like those old asylums, nothing. There was punishment in there. There were lobotomies in there. You were in there with people that were so profoundly mentally ill, you can't even begin to imagine. You do not want anything like that happening to you. And what was their crime? Their crime was they have a disease called alcoholism. They have a disease called alcoholism, and they were put in there, many of them, until they died. And it is a black eye on our society that this did happen. Thank you to AA for educating the medical profession and the public to stop doing that. Thank you, God. Moreover, I'm at the last line of 35. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. He did not want to be destroying himself with liquor. He couldn't help it because what happened to him was the buildup of emotions, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the anger over losing this business to people that he used to own. Now he's working for them as one of their employees. Let's continue on and let's see where we go from here. Yet he got drunk again. Very key sentence. He's been in the asylum. He doesn't want to go back to the asylum. He doesn't want to destroy his family. He doesn't want his wife crying her eyes out. He doesn't want his children hanging on to him going, daddy, daddy, please stop drinking. Yet he got drunk again. And how many of us had every reason in the world to stop vomiting, to stop using laxative, to stop using exercise bulimia, to stop overeating. And yet there we were again, because the compulsion is beyond human aid. This is a disease that will not yield. It will not yield to your human willpower. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. Without help, it is too much for us. Let's continue. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is the second reference to asking the person, how did this happen? This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. 
Tuesday morning, the boss might have said something like, hey, by the way, where were you yesterday? What the hell? We missed you yesterday. You weren't here. Now, I also want you to keep tally in your mind because the word I in the first paragraph of page 36 is going to appear 19 times. 19 times he is going to be self-involved with the word I being the indication. So 19 and the next one's going to be seven. So 26 times in two paragraphs, the pronoun I is going to come to the surface. It's important because a healthy person uses we or them or us. A, a self-involved person is only involved in themselves. Very, very different. Very different. I came to work on Tuesday morning. Where were you yesterday? I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. In other words, he has, I don't know about you, but I get these too. You maybe don't. He has what I would call a resentment. I know that many of you are unfamiliar with a resentment, but I have would have in that scenario a resentment. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Remember, he's having a few words with the boss. The boss controls his paycheck. The boss controls his self-esteem because if he gets fired from a business that he once owned, that's pretty much going to suck. That's pretty much going to be very, very embarrassing. That's going to suck. He had a few words with the boss. He's got a resentment going and he's got some fear going. He's probably got some guilt and shame going because he owned this business, but doesn't anymore. Then I decided to drive in the country and see one of my prospects for a car on the way I felt hungry. So I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. You mean to tell me, remember when we talked about Bill Wilson going into the cafe to make a telephone call and I raised the question, why couldn't he go to the men's clothing store? Why couldn't he go to the barber shop? Why couldn't he go to the drug store? Why couldn't he go to whatever, the funeral parlor, the laundromat, whatever, the truck repair? Why doesn't he go there to make a phone call? No, he's got to go to the cafe. And this guy's going to stop at a roadside place where they have a bar. He's already thinking they have a bar there. I had no intention of drinking. Yeah, my left foot. I just thought I might, I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which had been, which was familiar for, I had been going to it for years. In his mind, he knows they have a bar there. He could have gone to a sandwich shop where they didn't have a bar. He chose not to. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Nothing wrong there. So far, so good. Like the guy that jumped off the John Hancock building, what did he say on the eighth floor? So far, so good. All right, still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich, no problem there, unless he's a member of Overeaters Anonymous, which wasn't formed yet and decided to have another glass of milk. So far, so good. The word I is gonna appear in this next sentence that's in italics here. It's gonna appear seven times for a total of 26 times in two paragraphs. You may wanna make note of that. Suddenly, bang, all of a sudden, 
the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. Now, this is pure damned insanity. This is pure damned craziness. He's been to the asylum. He's been locked up behind bars. His wife and children have had their lives blown to bits by his incarceration in an asylum. I don't know about you, but if I was a kid and I went to school and the kids found out my dad or mom was in an asylum, I'd be open game for every wisecracker at Green School on Devon Avenue in Chicago or Mather High School, where I graduated in 1972. I would be open game for every crackpot with a wisecrack. But here he is drinking again. Why? Because he can't bear the pain of not drinking. The pain of not drinking is too much for him to bear because of the buildup of human emotion. And drinking is a step up from where he is. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sense I was not being any too smart. No kidding. But again, he is acting against his will. He is putting his disease in front of people. Remember when we studied Bill's story, when the big book wants to teach us something, it does not teach it to us once, it teaches it to us several times. I became a lone wolf. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row and I became a lone wolf. Do you remember that from Bill's story? Well, here he is, the remonstrances, the protestations, terminating in a row with his wife. Forget that. He's going to drink because he can't bear the pain of not drinking. And there are 159 people on this line right now that could not bear the pain of not eating. And we shoved food in our mouth, wearing clothes that did not fit. We shoved food in our mouth, knowing that we were missing out on life, knowing that our life did not tally to the dreams we had as children. And yet there we were doing it again, wondering, always wondering if, when this would stop. And there was no way for us to stop it on our own willpower. No amount of common sense, no amount of brain power was going to stop the ingestion of these foods because these foods brought sweet relief to the aching soul that was screaming out, screaming out for a respite from this intense pain this intense pain of not eating. And we could see ourselves in the mirror. We could see ourselves in the store window and we hated what we saw, but we continued to eat because we had hoped against hope that maybe this time it would be different. Maybe this time I won't have to destroy myself. Maybe this time I won't gain that much weight. Maybe this time I'll wake up tomorrow and I'll go back on my diet tomorrow. And tomorrow never came. Let's continue. But felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. In other words, I parked four parking spaces further away from the door than I'm used to parking. And so the bottom line is 
I, since I have four parking spaces further away, I can work off the 3000 calorie binge that I have in my shopping cart right now. No, actually you can't. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey. Why did he order the first whiskey? The first whiskey was the result of the mental twist. Why is he ordering another one? Because of the physical allergy. Once the whiskey was inside of him, it triggered that allergy. The experiment went so well, I poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me. So I tried another and another and another and another and another. The guilt, the shame, the remorse, the hopelessness, the sense of defeat that I always felt in the aftermath of one of these binges. How I survived, I don't know. Bill Wilson says in his story, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mind endured this two more years. My mind and body endured this a lot more than two more years. My mind and body endured it for decades. How did I survive? I only have one theory. And that was so I could tell you what happened to me. At the end of Moby Dick, Pequot says, how did I survive? So I, why did I survive? So I could tell thee. So I could tell thee. And that's the only reason I made it. My cardiologist, who I'm going to see in July, he asked me if it was true that I really weighed 689. Is that a mistake? No, it's not. He said, how much did you end up weighing? I said, well over 700. He says, how come that's not down here? I says, I didn't go to doctors. I didn't, I didn't let them do any, I didn't let them near me. I wanted to die. But he says, did you really weigh 689 pounds? I said, yes. He said, he took off his, uh, he took off his, didn't take it off. He put down his clipboard and the doctor said to me, the mathematical chances of you still being alive are zero. There's zero. There is no chance that you're still alive. And um, the only reason I think I survived is so that we could be together this morning. So that we could be together this morning. Let's go to the bottom of page 36 and continue. We only have a short time left. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering, which drinking always caused him. Please highlight the word always, always, not most of the time, not sometime. Drinking always caused him. That little adjective is so key to the understanding which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if he only mixed it with milk. This is absolute. Well, let's let the paragraph, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. 
How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? We are doing to ourselves what we know to be destructive. Nobody is holding a gun to our heads. Nobody has to. We are destroying our lives. We are destroying ourselves. And yet we are doing it voluntarily. I know that it's against our will, but we're, nobody's holding a gun to our head because the pain of not eating is too much to bear. The pain of not eating is unbearable. Drinking always caused him very, very important. Let's continue. We're on page 37. You may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched. For this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. But there was always, again, there's that word always, the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Like I'm going to go on my diet tomorrow, so I might as well live it up today. I'm going to be good at some point in the future, so I might as well live it up today. And then there's my favorite. I'll finish these French fries. I'll get the pizza. I'll get a couple of Big Macs or a couple of Red Hot Ranch on Devon Avenue hot dogs with their fries. And then tomorrow I'll be good. Tomorrow will be different. And tomorrow was worse. The reality is tomorrow was always worse. The insane idea won out. Next day we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity, how could it have happened? The reason that it happened wasn't known to me. Did I want to die? People asked me. Yes, but I couldn't tell them that. Don't you want a girlfriend? Yes. Don't you want a good job? Yes. Don't you want to look good? Yes. Don't you want to fit into the kind of clothes? When I was a kid in the 1960s, there was a place on Devon Avenue called Mr. Junior's. And Mr. Junior is where all the cool boys bought their pants. And in the 1960s, now Paul McCartney is having his 80th birthday today. You're going to see a lot of pictures of the Beatles. You're going to see a lot of pictures of the 60s. Look at the pants that the Beatles are wearing. Look at the pants that the men are wearing. Skin tight, straight legs. Everything is what they would call trimsters in those days. They would call the pants trimsters. Everything was skin tight. The women wore skin tight skirts and dresses and pants. The men wore skin tight suits and skin tight pants. God, I hope that style never comes back. Oh God, I hope it never comes back. But anyway, and I've lost a lot of weight, but um, don't, they'd say, don't you want to look like the other boys and shop at Mr. Junior? No, I couldn't do that. I had a shop on Lawrence Avenue in the old neighborhood, and I was wearing clothes that went out of style before World War II. I was wearing clothes. If they fit me, I had to wear them. I was wearing clothes that went out of style before Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president of the United States. And there I was, a teenager in the 60s, trying to fit in. 
So all these various reasons for not eating pizza, various reasons for not eating this stuff were there. And I completely, I didn't ignore them. That's not true. I could not acquiesce to the demands of society. And I was an outcast. Not only was I an outcast from them, but in the most sensitive area of the world, my own mind, my own spirit, I was less than them because no matter how hard I tried, I could not be like them. And it damaged me. And I think I have issues in the tissues that follow me to this day. I was emasculated by this disease, physically emasculated, emotionally emasculated. I did not do the things boys do. I didn't go to the makeout parties. I didn't, I, I wasn't on the baseball team. I, I didn't, I couldn't do the things boys do. I didn't learn the things they learned. I couldn't dream the things they dreamed. I was having enough trouble one day at a time, not eating the house. I was having trouble one day at a time, not completely destroying myself with food. And that was all I could, that was the level I could function at. That was the level that I could function at. Last paragraph of the day, and then we're gonna do the jaywalker next week. I'm saving the jaywalker for next week deliberately. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk. It's Saturday night. And sometimes if I got a good, good resentment, I'd say, hell with it, tonight we ride. And that meant we're gonna have a threesome, me, little Debbie and Sarah Lee. We're gonna have our, threesome. Me, little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. Once in a while, we would invite Ben and Jerry. Once in a while, we would invite Mc, old McDonald. And more often than not, we would invite Colonel Harlan Sanders. But there was always, there was usually men involved too. But usually it was just me and the girls, me, Sarah Lee, and little Debbie. Feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. And what did those things allow me to do? They allowed me to do shift blame to someone else. What are the four things that all addicts do incessantly? They lie. They assign blame. If you hadn't have done that to me, I wouldn't be eating McDonald's. They assign blame. They keep score in their relationships and they fight battles that just don't exist. I'll go over that one more time so it doesn't come up later. What are the four things all addicts do? They lie. How do you know when one of us is lying? When my lips are moving, that's when you know I'm lying. When my lips are moving, Number two, they assign blame. If you hadn't have done that to me, you bastard, I wouldn't be eating all these O'Henry bars now. Number three, they keep score in their relationship. You did this and I didn't do that and you screwed me over and you did this and you did that. They keep score in their relationships. And the fourth thing that all addicts do, they fight battles that just don't exist. They're out there and their sword and shield are in hand and they are on their steed and they're, they're riding their steed into battle and there's no one for a hundred miles 
fighting against them, but they're out there fighting the, the liberals and they're out there fighting the conservatives and they're out there fighting this and fighting that. My God in heaven. One of the most sad days in history is April the 29th, 1865. No, April 29th, 1865. What happened about 100 miles northeast of New Orleans, Louisiana? 17 men were killed, 43 were injured in a skirmish between the North and the South. Why is that so pathetic? Because on April the 9th, 1865, Lee surrendered to Grant. The war was over. They didn't know it. Men died. Men were injured. Men were permanently injured for nothing. For nothing. The war was over. How many battles am I continuing to fight that are over? How many battles am I fighting on an everyday basis where the war is over? The party's over. Every, everybody has gone home, but there I am still fighting that battle. Something to think about. Let's continue and we're going to finish this paragraph. We're going to run over a little bit. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. There's that word always again, always happened. We now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. I hope that today has been informative. We are in a chapter that is extremely important to study. We're in step one. We're going to meet next week. I hope that some of you or all of you, not some of you, all of you will join us next week as we go into the quintessential story, the jaywalker, which we're going to study next week. And we're going to talk next week about the permanent, progressive, and fatal um, nature of the disease, the three properties, permanent, progressive, and, and uh, fatal. And we're going to study that next Saturday. And I hope that you will join us. Now, I also hope that tonight, if you are around and you have time, that you'll join us on the family afterward. The Family Afterward is a wonderful speaker meeting, and they have just fabulous speakers. I am not the speaker tonight. Don't, don't think that. 